Hello and welcome to How to Fix, a podcast all about the behind the scenes innovations that are solving society's big questions. I'm your host, Rich Williams, and across this series, we'll be talking to the cutting edge researchers who are taking ideas from the lab to the street to make this world a better place. Today, we're addressing a political buzzword, net zero. We all know that reaching zero carbon emissions is important in halting climate change, but how exactly do we achieve something, well, so big? Carbon emissions seem to come from everything and everywhere. Cars, heating, food production and travel, to name just a few. It'll take many national and international agreements to make this dream a reality, spearheaded by events such as COP27 last year, And while no one wants a world ruined beyond repair, getting all of our world leaders to agree does feel a long way off. A lot of the policies, such as increasing taxes or making clothes and travel more expensive, aren't all that popular with us, the public. Crucially, they also don't feel that fair. So who is footing the bill for net zero? We've been hearing about a climate emergency for years now. At what point does an emergency become irreparable? Whilst the political decision-making sometimes feel like it's out of our hands directly, there is amazing work being done to make a real difference in the journey to net zero. And we'll be meeting three of the people at the forefront of that work in just a moment. We cannot expect us to solve the problems we have now by throwing the future under the bus completely. We need to think holistically and long term and have solutions that work for both. And today our message is, if change is not coming, we'll be at every corner of every street until it is. Right now, we're on the grassroots side. We're the activists. We're people who are saying, we need to be listened to at this point because we're in a state of emergency. I think if we treat the climate crisis in the right way, as we should, if we treat it like an emergency, people will understand that what we are experiencing now is something that requires us to take action. It's not something that we can continue to postpone, delay or distract from, uh, but that we are needed right here, right now. I want our world leaders to do more action, otherwise our future would be dying soon. They must act now to save our planet and to save our future. With me to discuss this are three guests whose research can show us how to make a real difference. Firstly, a lecturer in East Asian Studies who specialises in just and fair climate transitions, Dr. Claire Richardson Barlow. Thank you. Glad to be here. A professor of comparative employment relations specialising in decarbonisation measures, Vera Trapman. Hello, Rich. Happy to be here. And professor of international politics here at the University of Leeds, Richard Beardsworth. Thank you, Rich. Very happy to be here. So this is pretty much as chunky a topic as you can get, really, talking about how we can get to net zero. But before we get into what politicians are doing and the practical work that's been happening and the research going on, it's probably worth starting with climate justice and the importance that has to play in this. So, Claire, first up, just explain what is climate justice and what's the work you've been doing and the research into this? Well, to begin by defining the issue, I would start with saying that climate justice is closely intertwined with net zero and energy transitions by ensuring fairness, equity and inclusivity in addressing climate change. 
Climate justice calls for a just distribution of the benefits and the burdens of these efforts, recognition of historical responsibility, and meaningful participation of all stakeholders, particularly those who are most affected by climate change. In terms of climate justice and the importance of that, what kind of policies are we looking at here? And also, what's the subject matter that's important to get right before implementing those policies? Well, first, I would say that integrating climate justice into the UK's net zero transition is crucial to ensure fairness, inclusivity and sustainability across the board. By considering the social, economic and environmental dimensions of climate change, the UK can build a resilient and equitable low carbon future that benefits all of the citizens and workers and contributes to a just global response to climate change. In terms of actual policies, there are so many. These include broadly things like the implementation of social and environmental safeguards to protect vulnerable communities and ecosystems. We could also be talking about progressive carbon pricing mechanisms like carbon taxes or cap and trade systems, and also policies that promote the deployment of renewable energy, increased legal protections for particular groups, and even meaningful community engagement so that different voices are being heard at different levels of the process. We have a wide variety of options. It's just making sure that there is support for all of these options at different stages. Now, part of that's making sure that communities don't get left behind. Exactly. So how do we go about making sure that's not the case? Well, I would use an example from my research looking at the decarbonization of the UK steel industry, making sure that workers that are being impacted are having a voice in how different decarbonization policies are being implemented at both the corporate level, the policies that are being considered at a national level, and then also the ways in which international policies might be impacting their production in the UK specifically. We could also talk about this at the University of Leeds and in the University of Leeds community. If we were to, say, reduce the purchase of products that have a really high carbon impact, we wouldn't just be looking at how we are reducing buying those products, but how the communities in the greater Leeds area would be impacted by the University of Leeds pulling those contracts. I have a really good example to your question as well from Germany, because there we had a phase out of the coal production and whole regions are really dependent on coal mines and coal mining. And what was a really astonishing success was that there was a tripartite agreement, which means that the government and the employers and the trade unions as the voices of workers agreed the conditions under which the coal phase-out happens. And it was clear it wouldn't cost any job losses. There was a lot of investments pumped into the region to really help staying prosperous and have some kind of regional policy. And I guess the other issue as well is that just to decarbonize an industry as well as affecting people's jobs, industry is just going to move elsewhere. It's not necessarily going to stop it happening on a global level. There is this concern and the UK steel industry is a really great example of that because this is a national industry with a huge history. Like here in the North, steel was a dramatic part of economic development and production and industrialization. 
removing or putting in place certain limits on the industry does pose the question, well, then are we going to be purchasing steel that is more expensive? And therefore, are we looking at competition from a popular one is China? Tackling this issue in a way that is just and fair and involves all of the voices of stakeholders means looking at what those implications might be from international competition, but also discussing what potential solutions might be for communities in Sheffield, say, or in the greater Leeds and Manchester area. Vera, just to bring you in here in terms of doing the work that you've done on how UK workers feel about the decarbonisation of industry. What have you found in that? What are actual UK workers saying? Yes, that was very interesting for us. Basically, surveying workers in the UK, we found that the level of concern is extremely high. And the majority of workers in the UK thinks that we have to act upon climate change with extreme urgency. And a huge number of people felt really anxious, really fearful, and really outraged about the climate crisis. And some of them felt also guilty, but also probably half of the ones we asked felt hopeful. So there's still this belief that if we act now, we can still turn the tide and still prevent the most harmful change. And it was quite good to see that a lot of the workers, actually four out of five, felt very well informed about the causes but also the consequences of climate change, but less did know what actually happens in their local communities. So they didn't know what is the kind of action plan of communities to act against climate change. And not many did know what happens in their sectors and industries and in their workplace. And if we consider that so many industries have to decarbonize quite quickly, I think there's a real area for action for businesses and other stakeholders alike to inform more, to have more discussions at the workplace. But a lot of the workers were also afraid of the impact that net zero will have on their lives. So the cost of living might increase, that the inequality and poverty will rise. So the questions about fairness and justice are really at the heart of the workers if they think about climate change and net zero. And the interesting thing, I thought, was that while a lot of people try to reduce their carbon footprint at home as individuals, much less did so at the workplace. So it was really a minority that was involved in any measures to think of how can we reduce carbon emissions at the workplace. And the majority, though, expects that businesses are responsible to reduce the carbon emissions, but even more so address the government. So there is a huge urge that the government takes actions and puts in place the regulations that are needed to hold climate change. Is that a kind of people with a, well, I've done my bit sort of mentality, now over to the people that can impact bigger change? I don't interpret it in this way. I think it rather shows people are ready to do their bit. Yeah, they do their bit at home, but they realize that climate crisis is not just down to individual consumption, but that it is a systemic problem and that needs systemic solutions. So if we just all change our individual behaviors, it won't address the magnitude of the problem. But you can also see that we asked who would like to work in a kind of greener type economy. And 40% of all the people we asked said we would actually be okay switching our jobs. We would work in a green economy. And they were 
pretty much saying we do this because we want to do something meaningful in our working lives and we want to contribute towards climate change. So that is something really positive if we have the right policy measures that actually the population and the workers are ready to do what is needed. And is that something that's replicated in the research internationally? Yes. Yeah, so the project that we are doing that basically looks at just transition in 12 countries, where we also look at the global south, we see that the problems are much more complex. It's not just then a question of how do we produce things and how do we ensure that workers don't lose out if we change sectors or if we change industries, but that the interrelatedness of who is suffering most from climate change first, who is suffering most from, let's say, mitigation measures. So if we have indigenous people who are then deprived by their land because there are then is monocultures for alternative fuels, this is much more complex. And I think we have to be very aware as the global north that it's the rich people and the rich countries who produce most of the emissions and that we have to take our fair share of responsibility if it comes to how to mitigate the emissions and climate change. Let's bring it to a more local level from all those thoughts, which is the work that's actually been done at the University of Leeds at the moment, because I know you're very much at the forefront of that. And, and actually, these things are about leading by example, aren't they? And a commitment from the university to a pathway to net zero as well. So talk through some of the things that this institution has been doing that might be replicated elsewhere to create a, an impact. Yeah, the university has issued its own climate plan, but I'm in my role are leading the kind of decarbonisation of the business school. And so I can mainly talk for well, what we have done at the business school. But I think we have tried our bit. So we have decided that we want to become net zero ourselves by 2030. And in order to achieve this, we have basically looked at all our organizational practices and considered how do we need to change them to be actually net zero? And how can we stimulate more research that helps businesses and the economy to become net zero? And how do we need to revise our curriculum? So actually, what do we need to teach our students so that they can, as future business leaders, make an impact and contribute the economy to become net zero. So we've really looked at three different sides. And I'm quite happy how far we have come so far. So just to give you an example, in the business school, we have revised our business travel and come up with a new travel policy that basically bans flights within certain distances within Europe you have to pay a flight levy if you do take a flight beyond this 11 hours of travel. We have incentivized train travel. And we have even looked at the very difficult topic of students basically also emitting carbon when they come to us to study here. So we have agreed that we offset basically all the emissions. I know offset is not the solution, but we decided we need to do this to raise the awareness that a lot of the emissions that basically part of our business model is producing a lot of emissions. So these scope three emissions, we take them seriously and, and offset them for our students. And last but not least, something that I think will be really important, we have designed a climate action training. And that offers a kind of basic foundation education for all our students on climate. 
and it equips them with the thinking and the tools to understand the, the causes of climate crisis, but also why things don't change quickly enough and what they themselves can do in order to make a good contribution and impact. So and that climate action training is um, rolled out at LUPS at the moment, but we're pretty much trying that it will become part of basic education for the entire university so that, yeah, we can start basically at the start. Can I just add, firstly, something to what Vera said, which I think is somewhere where also the University of Leeds, I think, is pulling its weight, being one example among several within the higher education sector. And that is looking to higher education, particularly at postgraduate level, but I hope it will filter down gradually to undergraduate level, that actually climate change, as Claire has sort of said, the net zero necessarily implies questions of justice. Then when you're looking at climate change and you're looking at trying to either mitigate or adapt to it, you're looking at a complex problem, what in the jargon is called a wicked problem. And an interdisciplinary approach to the problem is necessary in order to actually be able to solve it. And one of the things I think University of Leeds is being very good at doing, and actors like Vera and others are helping, is to create interdisciplinary programs, which will gradually allow students to come through and have a skill set in several disciplines to be able to be flexible and versatile and offer solutions to what are going to be very quickly changing problems. It kind of brings us on to your area of expertise, really, which is to do with leadership and about imparting that wisdom to future leaders as well who might be coming through here. But we've talked about climate justice and we've mm. talked about ways in which, practically speaking, things can be done, whether it's here at the University of Leeds or whether it's in other institutions. But it is, of course, also about leadership and about leaders getting together and making those decisions work. Like you said, Vera, people want to see change happen but they're like well are our leaders gonna step forward and, and do that and we see things like cop 27 and the leaders gathering together what are leaders doing are they doing enough at the moment and what do they need to do i think going back to the first question about the ambition if we and the we here is is the globe so it's a very abstract we yeah but if we want to get to net zero by something like 2050 2050 to 2060, then quite a lot has to be already done by 2030. Climate scientists have been very clear about that, and the climate modeling is clear. And the pathways are up to 45% reduction of global greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. That means about 7.5% every year from now. You know, during the pandemic, when we weren't flying, we weren't particularly traveling in cars, yeah, the reductions were only between 4 and 4.5 in northern countries. I'm not going to talk about the south there. Uh, it's a very different problematic. That shows you the scale of the challenge and the scale of the ambition needed. And it's very important that in that, leadership is coming from all parts of society. So who are the world leaders, the voices, the people providing inspiration at the moment that are, are making the right noises? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, Rich? You know, we're all looking to political actors to take the lead. And we're looking to particular countries, but US, China, European Union, the UK, countries in Africa. These are the places where we're looking for leadership and we're looking for political leadership. But actually, at the moment, where is the leadership? I think particularly for the young generation, it's with people like Greta Thunberg and it's with people like Vanessa Canati. And they're the ones who are actually showing us, teaching our generation, it's almost like a generational lesson, how to lead. 
So we need to catch up. But what is clear also from what Claire said and what Vera is saying, governments are critical here because they are the ones who can put in place comprehensive, consistent policy in a sustainable way that is cross-sector yeah, because it's cross-ministerial. And the ambition that we're looking at in terms of 2030 to get to 2050 requires that kind of governmental innovation. I think where one can be hopeful there are signs. There's the Anti-Inflation Reduction Act in the US. It looks like the Labour Party is sort of trying to get a plan in place. We don't quite know when it would come in, if they come into government, whether it would be immediately, or as Rachel Reeves has recently said, it would be two years down the line. Yeah, the European Union is setting up its Green Deal. We're moving away from, in a sense, market solutions to both market solutions, which are critical with regard to the drop in price of, of renewables, yeah, and government solutions. And I think that dynamic or I hope, at least, that that dynamic now increases more and more at national level, just as at an international level, governments have to be very clear that the international financial architecture, which allows for capital investment in the most vulnerable countries, technology transfers to the most vulnerable countries, that that actually takes place in a way whereby what is needed gets to the right place at the right time. So there are huge questions in the coming years for what governments can do yeah, both at national level and at international level. I think all of us, where is our citizenship? It is, you know, apart from being more and more sensitive and sensible consumers, as citizens, we have to put increasing pressure on governments to actually act up, take up their responsibilities and lead in this domain of steering markets towards just effective solutions. I mean, you mentioned Greta Thunberg. It's obviously reached a whole audience of generation that maybe wouldn't be engaged in the the conversation in the same way that it would come through traditional politicians and has has managed to do that. I I guess one of the difficulties presumably at the moment is, as well as this being an urgent crisis at the moment, something that needs to be looked at, there are other things worldwide as well that are pulling on those purse strings because a lot of this is a financial solution as well. It's a difficult time to prioritise all these different things at once. And we we have a series of those things post-pandemic where actually there's a lot of pressure on governments pulling in all different directions. Yes, but I do think, I mean, what's come through as well since, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the energy crisis has come out of that. Um, Yes, there are trade-offs with regard to immediate energy supplies and the way in which, therefore, liquefied natural gas has come back in. There is further excavation of fossil fuels, and we know that's really important in the UK, where there's going to be further licensing in the North Sea. But equally, I think one's hearing more and more the message from political actors partly through the pressure of civil society, is there are green solutions that are solutions that work also for the immediate economic needs that we have. What is required are policies put in place, subsidies put in place, regulatory reforms put in place, so that actually this moves in a much more consistent manner. So I'm a little nervous of the kind, Rich, of the kind of, not saying you said that, but of the kind of picture whereby Cost of living crisis, that's immediate, immediate migration questions. We're not going to really be able to address this big issue of climate change. Yes, we can, because climate change now is everything. And so it's a catalyst for various forms of reform at various levels of society. And I think that's what's very exciting about it. It is a place where all things can congregate in such a way that we can get to a just energy transition as a whole. Can I jump in and underscore a couple of Richard's really great points? 
particularly as a political economist, I absolutely agree with everything you have just said about the balance of society, political will, and financing. Climate change solutions, while they require financing, what we are seeing globally is there is a paucity, a huge lack of political will. And that is one of the biggest barriers, not the investment and the money behind these changes. In my research in examining the UK steel industry and decarbonization, we found that broadly decarbonizing a particular sector in the UK is a long road, yes, and it has multiple layers of support and systemic change within the UK economy, other industries, and civil society that have to occur. It's not one single issue or one single solution. We're looking at a interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary approach to addressing these challenges. Fascinating to hear how it should be done, how we go about doing that, the things that are already being done as well. I guess, you know, we start the podcast by asking the question, how do we fix net zero? And there's work going on. It's a huge topic. I didn't think we'd get to the end of this and have that solution necessarily. But if you were saying on all the podcasts, wake up tomorrow morning and one thing had changed to move the dial slightly to take us to the next step that will help solve this problem, what would be that, that one thing you would like to see happen? Well, for me, it would be ensuring justice in the form of equity and inclusion in any approach to achieving net zero. It has to be a part of the conversation. We need to hear politicians, business leaders, and civil society representatives using that language and saying that this matters. At the University of Leeds, I think there's a lot of hopeful things happening related in part to just transitions and climate justice in particular, the development of a Just Transitions Task Force that will incorporate faculty, staff, and students from a variety of different areas within the University of Leeds to make sure there are a variety of voices in the university's transition to net zero. Vera, what about you? I think I would hope that climate education would be omnipresent so that basically everyone gets the chance to understand the climate crisis and understands what can be done and see what is already happening and how the research and work we do can help to mitigate climate change for the next generation. And finally, Richard. I think it's been underlined how important political commitments are in the coming years. And we're talking literally about the next six years. So with regard to that political commitment... And with regard to the actors of it, I would say to us all, following Vera in a sense, be aware of what is going on. Reflect critically. Act upon that by the following. Yeah? Elections are coming up. Campaign. Vote. Vote for the party, parties that are going to enact comprehensive green policies with the questions of justice very much at the foreground of their environmental and climate change concerns. Well, thank you so much to our panel for tackling the difficult and, well, vast issue, as we've heard, of how we fix our approach to net zero. It's 
going to take much more than one podcast to solve our climate crisis, but it is encouraging to see so much work and research being done to tackle global warming. I'm Rich Williams. This has been How to Fix, and hopefully this podcast has shown that although society is facing some huge questions at the moment, there are incredible people constantly researching and innovating to help tackle those issues. And speaking of the big issues, we'll be discussing another one in the next episode. How to Fix was presented by Rich Williams and produced by Kasia Tomashevich. The audio producer was me, Jade Bailey, and the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. How to Fix is a Podmasters production for the University of Leeds Communications and Engagement Team. 